You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And so I want to invite you, as is our custom, and we've been walking through the Gospel of Matthew, the, the first of the four Gospels, the first book in the New Testament, and this Gospel, this word Gospel, simply just means good news. It is the, these are the, the four primary accounts of these followers of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who tell us about who Jesus is and what he did. And in this particular part of this, uh, this account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we find in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, one of the most famous accounts ever recorded, what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been in the most famous part of the most famous, uh, uh, of the most famous oratory in the history of the world, which is what's we, what we call the Lord's Prayer. So I want to read to you uh, the context for this Lord's Prayer that's so well known. I'll read beginning in verse 5 of chapter 6, and I'll read all the way uh, to verse 15. But when we get to verse 9, halfway through, Jesus begins to invite us to join him. And so uh, I want us to begin to, as we've been praying and preparing to be able to do this together, to to come to God rightly in this, this model that Jesus gives us, I want you to join me in reading it aloud when we get to the, ha- uh, the halfway point of, of chapter 6, verse 9. So I'll begin as Jesus gives us the context For this kind of private prayer, beginning in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I pray that God would allow these words to become more than ink on a page, but the very voice of our God and Father to his children. I want to convince you that all of your deepest needs, all of your deepest longings, your deepest desires are expressed here in this prayer. And then I want to convince you that they're all answered and met and what we celebrate today. All of our deepest needs and longings, every single one of them, are expressed in this prayer. And all of those needs, all of those longings, are answered and met in Jesus. What we celebrate today, that Jesus is alive, that even though he died in the place of sinners, death could not hold him. And he did what you and I 
we'll never be able to do on our own. Namely, that is to be free of death. But the death of Jesus meets our needs. It forgives our sins. It is a fulfillment of an ultimate life in exchange or death in exchange for life. And now today, the resurrection in this celebration we offer today is an answer to all of the prayers here. Now, our time this morning, we're going to spend on verse 13. We're going to spend our time seeing how the resurrection of Jesus answers these two requests, to to be led into paths of righteousness and ultimately to be delivered from evil. But in the rest of the prayers we've seen for the last few weeks, all the solutions to all of your ultimate problems are expressed here. I believe that when we begin to pray rightly in light of what Jesus offers here, that is, this is what in the Sermon on the Mount we're invited to see, what it looks like to talk to God and relate to God inside his kingdom. If Jesus is in control of all things, if he's the king that he says he is, then this is what people inside his kingdom, submitting to his kingship, will start to sound like when they speak to God. And the most powerful part is found in the very first phrase. As we said, it qualifies the rest of the prayer and even the rest of the chapter and book. That is that he is, that is God is our father. Jesus gives us a picture, an analog for what God is like. God is like a loving and perfect father. Not like your father and mine who who maybe at best gave us life, but at worst caused harm and disappointed the kind of harm that, that shapes the way we even interact with people around us. But, but that gives us hope that there is a better Father. And so we find here that all of these petitions go to a God who is a Father who delights to hear from His children. And they're delivered in what we celebrate today. This is the sixth petition of the prayer. A prayer to be led, like lead us, guide us and a prayer for deliverance, deliver us. Last week we saw that if anyone sees what it has cost God, the Father, to grant them forgiveness, then they will begin to forgive others. And you hear kind of the exclamation mark at the conclusion to this section as I read after the prayer in verse 14 and 15. That is, that unforgiveness on our part shows a lack of a heart that has known forgiveness itself. And so this week, we see that that petition, that petition for forgiveness from God is accompanied by a petition to be led away from temptation or trial. And it follows then a a petition for forgiveness. It's in many ways predicated on, it's based on a desire and experience of forgiveness. And so Jesus includes in genuine repentance in this prayer, a prayer for deliverance from trial and temptation and a deliverance from evil. Because after all, if you have not genuinely repented of your own sin and experienced the grace that comes, then you won't have any capacity to forgive others. Now, let me before we dive into this, I have to address what may be the, the elephant in the room or the elephant on your translation of your Bible. And that is, Immediately following verse 13, you might have in your translation something that we probably recited if you're, if you're from a Protestant background, right? And I don't know any way to do this than the King James because that's how I learned this, right? But for, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen, right? 
And you might even think that if, if that was kind of what you've memorized, you might even find that, like, man, this is a really abrupt ending. Well, if you have an ESV, it will, it will usually have, a, like the Bible you'll see, usually has kind of a footnote that explains some of these things. So let me give you a, a very brief crash course in how the Bible as a canon was formed. That is, there, there are two main ways of thinking about how these authoritative texts, these manuscripts that were passed around in the earliest church in the first century, were, were preserved and saved and then compiled. And the two major approaches are what we would call the, what, what, what is valuable as the majority text. That is, that the majority of the manuscripts that survived uh, kind of are the most reliable. And then you have what we would describe as like a, a historical view. That is the oldest, the most historic manuscripts that survived are the ones that are the most reliable. Now, there are two different ways to come about this, but if your translation, for example, has for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, that's, that's what has come to us from what we call the textus receptus. That is the majority text, the received text, the one that, that survived in the largest quantity. But if your, if your translation, like the one I just read, the ESV, if it doesn't include that, then what you'll see there is simply that this is what we call the historical text. That is, the oldest texts are the ones that are included. Now, I'll say this is the beauty that we get to, we have the ability to trust the Scripture here because of this. And, and, and I don't want you to think this as a reason. Well, see, this is corrupted and I can't trust it. That's not true at all. In fact, if you want to, if you, if you want to to think of the validity of this, even if it's not in Matthew chapter 6 here, you can make your way back to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, which is believed to be the origin of that phrase. It goes like this, beginning in verse 10, therefore David, the, this model king that whets our appetite for King Jesus, blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly, and David said, blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. So, it's believed, at least after a few centuries, this probably got included. This little excerpt of First Chronicles got included. And so if you want to pray in private and recite the Lord's Prayer and include this chunk of First Chronicles 29, whether it came from the words of Jesus or David, we get to see that it, it's, a, it's a great thing to pray. That is, there's a whole lot of other things I would even include in the Old Testament that you should include as you pray the Lord's Prayer. But I digress now. At least the, the encouragement I would offer to you is this. The number of people who died in order to get this text into our hands is miraculous. There has been no other text that has been tried to, that, has, that, that people have attempted to silence and to remove other than this book. And the fact that people were willing to die and by God's grace, this got transferred and passed on to you and I is a miracle. And you can trust it because it was handed to us at the cost of many lives. Who knew that this word was the power to give life? So, however you choose to end this prayer, we find here Jesus giving us a picture of how we ought to speak and relate to God in light of his kingdom that's come. So there's two different things we ask for here in this prayer if we are modeling our prayer after Jesus. Lead us not into temptation, and then deliver us from evil. And then the conclusion, 
right? This is, the, this is the part people love to ignore when they recite the Lord's Prayer. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So, lead us not at temptation. That's a difficult word to translate, that word temptation. It can be translated and is translated elsewhere as a test or a trial or even a form of a trap. This word later uh, is used to describe what the Pharisees are trying to do with Jesus when they asked him questions. They're trying to trap him. 1 Peter chapter 1 begins this way. Encouragement to these people. He says, In this you now rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says again in chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. You can hear Peter echoing the, the sentiment of, of the prayer of, 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 you'll find in the book of Daniel, of some teenage boys who, who were invited, even though the king knew that they worshipped the one true God, invited them to bow down and worship an idol. And they simply said, okay, you know we can't do this, and we trust that God will deliver us. But even if not, we still will not worship this idol. And so when First Peter, Peter tells the, this, this group of scattered Christians being persecuted, they will experience fiery trial. It's meant to conjure up images of, of these brave young men who, who simply said, even at cost of their own life, we, we will not worship these foreign, these idolatrous things. Instead, we're willing to die for it and Sure enough, God vindicates them by delivering them through death. But I'm getting ahead of myself. James chapter 1 says it this way, Count it all joys, my brother, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Author of Hebrews tells the a church this, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So, think of it this way. The desire here is not to avoid all testing and temptation altogether. After all, Jesus, even just a few chapters ago, was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted or tested. But what he's desiring here is, is kind of connected to the second phrase, that whatever temptation we might face, it wouldn't overwhelm us, that we would be, de that we would be delivered through it. Whatever trial is brought to us, it would expose something that God means to heal or restore. And so when we begin to pray this prayer rightly, we saw on Friday we're going to pray for forgiveness, and then on top of forgiveness, we begin to pray that God would deliver us from sin. Think of it this way. Repentance includes the desire, and I'm quoting John 5 here, to sin no more. So while on Friday we saw that we pray for God to forgive us, even in the way that we would forgive others as we see echoed in those last verses, 
A person who has really experienced forgiveness of sin wants nothing to do with it. If a person desires liberation from only the guilt of sin, then they've missed out on the kingdom that Jesus brings. They will also want release from its power. So this is a full-scale assault on sin. After all, once we've seen it, and we've seen the grace applied to it, we want nothing to do with it. Think of how it adds to this or or helps us understand what it means to really desire forgiveness. If you say, I'm forgiven, but now I'm fine. I'll be fine. God's forgiven me of my sin, so now I don't need to do anything about it. I can just go on. In ultimate sense, you're you're lost. You haven't really experienced this kind of forgiveness that's described here. Instead, when we see that God is willing to forgive our sins and pay a great price to do so, we don't want any part of the sin that put Jesus on the cross. And we say, God, if you don't lead me, I'll wander right back into where I came from. God, if you don't protect me and hold me and keep me, I'll return to my own filth. I'll go right back into the pit from which you pulled me. And so what we find here is that testing is an occurrence for growth. It's an occasion for deep growth. And Jesus is showing us how to ask for sovereign protection that we need in order to endure the trials that we experience in this life. So, in the hands of a loving father, Right, the light in which we read this entire prayer, testing becomes the occasion for growth. What we find, I think, for the rest of the, as I read, and even in the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, testing and trial is inevitable. Now, for many of you who have made your way into this room, and, and you right now you feel a weight of sorrow or burden or anxiety, like that doesn't shock you, right? You're like, no way. Right? If I said, like, this life is full of many difficult trials, many of you are like, duh, right? But I'm speaking to maybe some of you who, who, are, who are maybe in denial that really you're kind of hoping things will just get better. But trials are expected. When we realize how deep sin in our own heart goes and we realize the, the vast reach of the effects and consequences of sin in the world, we realize that unless God comes and restores and repairs all of these things, then everything that's been touched by sin is going to be a source of pain and discouragement. And so the New Testament teaches us to long that God would deliver us, that long that God would keep us from the kinds of trials that would overwhelm us. Now, this is important, at least as I read, because I want you to, to be, I want you to have your eyes wide open. These kinds of tests and trials are inevitable. In a sinful, broken, fallen world, trials are inevitable. They will surely come. Difficulty will happen. And most of our problem and difficulty in trials and tests and difficulty, or most of our difficulty comes from being surprised by the trial more than experiencing the trial itself. Because even as I'm telling you, like, no, it's going to be rough, it's going to be tough, but Jesus is going to deliver you, right? Even then you're kind of like, maybe, yeah, he's probably talking to them. But it's, my life is going to get better. And so it, what it sets us up for is that 
what we believe about God, which is false, that somehow the, the greatest thing that God has brought to us is just the, the fleeting happiness that we experience from moment to moment. Praise God for those moments. But one of the biggest difficulties we have is when we, we are shocked when difficulty comes. And so here's what I want to tell you in light of what we celebrate and Christians have celebrated for centuries. If you're shocked by those trials, you haven't seen the cross. You haven't felt its weight. You have considered what it really represents and what it shows us about the world and about its effects. Everyone's shocked when bad things happen. And yet we see Jesus, who lived innocently and died unjustly and was the calm person in it. So what does this teach us? I think that this teaches if ultimately you think that being forgiven of sin doesn't include a growing hatred for it, a growing desire to see it eradicated from your life, and a growing desire to see that you, you wouldn't be overwhelmed by it, but that God would deliver you from it, then you haven't heard the good news, is that God didn't just come to, to kind of cancel uh, your debts in the past, but has left you up to keep your ledger clean. No, God has come to cancel all of your debts past, present, and future, and he will lead you through all the grace you need. And this is really good news, because I think half of you probably are like, yeah, yeah, I believe you, Jesus forgives sinners. But really, the way I'm going to get through this week is I'm going to work really hard and try my best. And what does he say? Don't try to get something or accomplish something that's freely given by the Father. And friend, you can go to the Father and ask him, God, don't let me get trapped. You can boldly approach God and say, don't, don't let me be overwhelmed by the sin that tempts me and entangles me. Carry me through. And that gets us to the second petition. Deliver us from evil. It could mean spare us from the trials, grammatically, or it could mean spare us from when we face those trials. And grammatically, it's really interesting, it says from evil. Quite literally, it just says deliver us from the evil. And so your translation might say the evil one, or the, your translation might say like this, just evil, conceptually speaking. But, but don't miss the point, they could go either way. There is evil personified. We believe, we believe it is, he's, he's an accuser, an enemy of God and his people, and we call him Satan. And so in one sense, we, we are praying, God, deliver us from the tempter, but also deliver us from all evil. If I'm going to experience trial, get me through it. You can kind of hear the echoes of the 23rd Psalm, the shepherd Psalm, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no, right? Did you get the idea? Like this, there's this picture that we, we long for God to deliver us. Even though we know he has promised it, we, we daily depend upon him. I think the way I would say it is this way, the ultimate deliverance that people are longing for and ought to be longing for in the kingdom is evil. Another way to say it is this, all the pain in the world can't destroy you, but one sin can. When you start to pray this way, you realize that the greatest, like the greatest opponent, like the greatest difficulty, the, beta, the greatest challenge and trial that you and I will face is not pain and suffering. It's evil. Because after all, he, he could just say, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from bad times. But you and I know 
Evil has a way of creeping into our own hearts and our own motives in good times and bad. I think what you see here is that when suffering comes, we're meant to call out to God, not just to deliver us from suffering. By all means, pray for that. Like we find the rest of the New Testament says, remember, this isn't the only prayer in the New Testament. This is as if to say this, this is kind of summarily helps us to help to prepare ourselves to fight the hypocrisy that comes naturally with sinfulness in prayer. And so in this sense, pray for all sorts of things the New Testament tells us. But don't only pray for deliverance from suffering. Pray for deliverance from evil. When suffering comes, God, keep us from evil. Let those tests do their work. One author explains it this way, just to simply say that these tests and these temptations, these trials, are similar to the power and pressure that turns coal into a diamond. And if you don't see that, then you'll do everything in your power to avoid pain and therefore avoid the process of God making us new and holy and will avoid the blessing that comes from trusting Father every step of the way. Our greatest enemy here is not pain. It can't destroy you. Sin can. And you can ask God for provision and forgiveness because of what Christ has done. But notice this petition for deliverance comes after the petition for forgiveness. I said this a minute ago, but once you have forgiveness, you'll see sin for what it is. You'll see trials and tests for what they are, simply a way to evaluate and expose what you really are. But once you have forgiveness and you hate sin, you don't just want to get away from your guilt. You want to put sin to death. You want nothing to do with it. And you want to be delivered from every square inch of it. And that's because the biggest problem when we experience God's forgiveness and grace, we realize the biggest problem in our life isn't just suffering, it's evil. Let me put it this way. If, if, you, if you want to be forgiven of sin but you still want to dabble with it, you're in grave danger. If you want to flirt with sin rather than to be free of it and even delivered from the temptation of it, then you have not heard about the cost of sin. The cost that was freely paid for you and for me by Jesus Christ. And when we see that and experience that, we won't want any part of the thing that put him there. Testing, then, reveals our hearts. Tests reveal what we are really like. Think of it this way. In testing, the real you is coming out. Now, some of you in education, this will make perfect sense, right? But, like, most people hate tests. Like, if you were in school and you just hate tests, right? It's probably because you don't really care about the material. You just wanted the grade and get on to whatever it is that you wanted to do, right? Because if you really love the material, you want to be evaluated on whether or not you've mastered it. I'll hit close to home here, right? If you really want to lose weight, you'll check the scale every single day to mark your progress. But if you're terrified to know what's really true, you'll avoid it. 
If you really want to grow and be the person that you really expect everybody else to be to you, you'll solicit feedback. Hey, how am I doing? Can you help me? Can you help me grow? How, how, am I being more patient? Am I being kinder? Am I being more like easily, like, is, am I easier to be around, right? But if you don't really want to know yourself and you want to hide from that, you won't seek that kind of evaluation at all. But see what we're offered here is that this kind of testing and trial reveals what's true about us. And hear the good news. Those tests are never, ever to expose what's true about us to God. Those tests are to expose what's true about us to us. Right? It, it, God made the tests, right? right? He has the answer key. And so, He's not surprised or shocked. And this is really good news for us because the most difficult things in our life bring about what we wish was not true about us. And yet those are the very things that God means to apply grace toward. And the thing you, you, the thing you didn't want to admit about yourself is the thing God has been trying to bring to the surface and bring healing to from the beginning. And so there's nothing, there's nothing that can be brought to the surface that God is not aware of. Remember, the shock is on our part, not on God's. Because if you just take a test to get an A, then you don't really want to know the material. You just want the accolade or the achievement that comes with it. But if you want to know and love and master the material, then an exam is a welcome update. And it's good and right for God who, while he doesn't lead us into temptation, when we see that James tells us that God tempts no one, that temptation comes from the evil and the depths of our own heart, but, but God allows throughout Scripture examinations, that is, things about us to be exposed and brought to the surface. And if you really love someone that you're teaching, you will want, you will want to make sure they have mastered the material. Right? How unloving would it be to teach a child how to drive a car and not insist that they really know how to drive a car before you let them loose. How hateful would it be to do so? Oh, no, I don't want to hurt your feelings. You'll be fine. Ha, huh, right? Like, think of it this way. God is good and merciful. He doesn't want you to face tomorrow until he has helped see that he's going to give you the grace to be prepared for it. And if you don't really want to know what's true, then it's probably because the truth hasn't fully set you free yet. And these tests are the way that God gets through to us. We carry with us sinful desires and motives, ones we're not even aware of. And I hate, I, mean, I, I want you to know I hate this. I wish this wasn't true. I really wish this wasn't true. But in God's design, Often the only way that those things come to the surface is through pain and suffering and trial. And I know there's many of you in this room, you know that. As I'm saying, you know that better than I'm even saying it. I mean, in fact, you're like, duh, right? I wish this weren't true. I wish that I could say to each and every one of you, everything's going to be okay. But, that would be to deny the most powerful mechanism for victory that the world has ever seen, namely the cross. That God saw fit to do the most countercultural thing, to take the thing that is most despised and most hated, 
and exalt it as an example that he can use anything, anything to bring about his purposes. And friend, there's nothing that God will bring to the surface that he won't also apply grace. The goal then is for us to live in a constant state of dependence upon the Father to get us through this broken, fallen world. That's the goal. These tests aren't meant to destroy us. They're meant to refine us. They're meant to make us what God means for us to be. And so as we live in a broken, fallen world, we live in this constant state of dependence, a constant state of dependence with our Father to get us through. We have sinful desires lurking. We have secret selfishness that we're not even aware of. And God is drawing them out for us to see not how vindictive He is, but how thorough His grace is. It's so thorough. It's comprehensive. We used this example before as we were walking through the book of James about this very topic, but if, if you're... If you're fighting something that's assailing your body, how much, of that, how much of that thing that's assailing your body do you want the doctor to remove? Right? How thoroughly do you want them to do their job? And if there's any part of you that's like, ah, take most of it, but leave some, right? that you, then you haven't really understood the role of the doctor and the, and the power of the threat on your own life. And in the same way that we would look to a, a healing doctor and say, please, fix it all, <laughs> Fix all the broken stuff. This is the kind of prayer that now we can ask of God. And no, he will answer. Fix it all, God. Fix my insecurity. Fix my need for the approval of people. Fix my obsession with success and winning. God, fix how afraid and anxious I am in the midst of difficult circumstances. Fix how dependent I am upon things that have no power to give me life. Fix my addiction for this or that. Fix my need for the acceptance and approval of the opposite sex. Fix my need to be successful at everything. And you can pray those kinds of prayers knowing that God will apply apply grace to every single one. There's not a single one of them that God won't lead you through. Well, how do we know? We know because of what we celebrate. We saw that because of Jesus, we now have a God who is a father, whose name is exalted, whose kingdom and will is coming, who is now providing for us our need for ongoing existence and even our need for forgiveness and reconciliation. And so because of Jesus, we know that he will also lead us into paths of righteousness and he will deliver us ultimately from evil. We can depend upon Christ to do this. Now, what do we do with those last two verses? For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, what's he saying? Is he saying that, like, God is withholding forgiveness until you forgive, you make the first move, and then he will forgive? Well, no, that would contradict everything we see for the rest of the book of Matthew, even what we've already seen. But again, in this teaching, Jesus uses analogy, and he uses hyperbole to say something extreme, to say that if you don't forgive, it shows that you have not received forgiveness. 
And it's as if to say, like, you will begin to forgive now the way that God will forgive you in the future. And if you don't really trust that God will forgive you in the future, then good luck trying to forgive or show grace now. But look at what's implied in this entire passage. Because now of the resurrection, we have the ability to forgive. Since God has forgiven us, we are now able to hear this kind of hyperbolic threat in 14 and 15, and we're not scared by it. We can say, all right, this is really hard. It's going to cost me every single day to to forgive my abuser, to forgive and cancel the debt of the one who hurt me. That doesn't mean you have to be best friends with them or everything will be put back right until Jesus comes back. But if there's any part of you that doesn't want to withhold that cheek to, to be that they would come back and kiss and reconcile, then, then friend, you haven't seen what Jesus has done. And I want to proclaim to you a miracle. That person that you find it impossible to forgive, you can trust Jesus. God will bring about justice, either at the cross or at the judgment throne. And now you can entrust them to him. You don't have to hold that against them anymore because God has no longer held your sin against you. And some of you, you even as I say that, I hope you feel, you, like you feel it. Like as I say, you, you were dead in your trespasses and you were made alive to God. You, you, you were failing and, and miserable and sick and without hope in the world because of your sin, and yet God sent his son to make you new, to cancel the debt that was held against you. And even as I say that, I, here's what, I bet you like there's, there's some of that unforgiveness that you have towards someone, it starts to crack just a little bit. Just a little bit. Maybe not all at once, but just a little bit. You feel its grip loosened. And we know that there is nothing that God won't lead us through. If God led Jesus through death, then he will lead us through death as well. And if God led Jesus through death, then he will lead us through our unforgiveness. He delivered Jesus and he will deliver us. He didn't trap Jesus. He won't trap you. He delivered Jesus. He will deliver you. Now maybe I'm going to speak to just a couple of you. Maybe from the room and you're not a Christian, you're maybe not sure, or you have deep questions about this. Maybe this is where your, your skepticism is at the highest. right? For Christians, this is where our joy is at the highest, that Jesus is alive and raised from the dead. But if you're in this room and you're, maybe you're like me, you're, you're kind of a, a cynical, you know, kind of doubting disposition, you're like, this is the silliest day of the year. Like, okay, this guy was dead and he's not alive. And I want to agree with you. I want, I want to agree with you. I, I, want, I want to tell you, I want to agree with you, the very thing that's in your, in your head. It is impossible for a person to rise from the dead. I want, I want to concede to you. It is impossible for a person to rise from the dead. But I want to invite you in your imagination to consider something. That's why it's such a big deal that it happened. That's why no one will shut up about it. It is absolutely impossible. It is absolutely impossible. But that's why every single attempt, I love the New Testament, isn't even shy about it. Every attempt to silence this has failed. Because when people see God do the impossible, they can't keep quiet about it. And because of the resurrection... Neither can we. 
Think of it this way. Easter is for people who are down and out, who are without hope. Easter is for people who face impossible circumstances. And I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even contradict you if you were like, Jonathan, my situation is impossible. Right? I, I, this, this shocks married couples. Like, it, it's impossible for our marriage to survive. I'm like, yeah. I mean, you just now figured it out, but yeah. And your circumstance, I'm certain, is impossible. But friend, our hope is not in the possibility of our circumstances. Our hope is in the ability of God to do the impossible. And that's why Easter is such a big deal. And God received the perfect work of Christ and vindicated him. Because after all, this innocent man died wrongly. Right? There's a phrase that often we, we, we kind of throw around, like, why do good things happen to, to you know, why do bad things happen to good people or good things happen to bad people? Because deep down inside, right, whether you're liberal or, or conservative, you don't like it because you think that your team should be treated better and their team should be treated worse. Right? And down deep, we're believing a lie that, like, ultimately, we're good and deserve good things. And here's what I'll tell you. Like, man, there is injustice in the world, and I want to see God eradicate it. But there was only one time in the entire world where a bad thing happened to a good person. All the other times, bad things happened to sinful people. Now, in many cases, they didn't deserve it, and I pray for God's justice. But there was one time when bad things happened to a perfectly good person, and his name was Jesus. And you will think, that's unjust. An innocent man died wrongly. It shouldn't be that way. And God said, yup, and raised him from the dead. He vindicated Jesus and his innocence and his perfection so that you would realize that there is a God who actually holds things together, who does the impossible and leads people through the most difficult circumstances, even an old rugged cross. Think of it this way. If the greatest wrong and injustice in the whole world could be vindicated and made right by God, then there is hope for us. Absolutely an innocent man died wrongly. And that's why to prove the point, God raised him from the dead on the third day. And so you can trust God to deliver you. Christ was tested and proven true. He was delivered from evil to deliver us with him. Jesus faced the ultimate temptations, trials, and traps, and he was proven true. He was delivered from true evil in order to deliver us from evil. On Easter Sunday, you can pray this prayer, God, deliver us from evil, and Jesus comes out of the tomb to say, you bet. I want to wrap up where we began, that phrase, our Father. You don't have to join me there, but if you want to, passage of scripture we'll probably be coming around to in the gospel of Matthew, maybe this time next year, is in Matthew chapter 28. It's the account of the resurrection. And I want to draw your attention to something very briefly before we begin to realize the invitation we have. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 28, the account of the resurrection says something. Remember, Jesus has invited us to think about God as a father. And the phrase he uses is our father. So that you would know his vindicating and victorious resurrection isn't just for him, but it's for all those who are adopted in him. Our father. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. I love that. Like, I'm so scared. I'm just going to play dead. And if they kill me, oh well. That's scared, right? But the angel said to the woman, do, or the women, do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. I love that the, 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 tomb, the, the stone on the tomb wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that people could get in. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from, risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples, and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. (laughs) What an understatement. (laughs) Hey! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Stop for a minute before we read verse 10. The prayer, remember I told you that Jesus is inviting us to pray, is the prayer of those who have seen his kingdom and what it's like. A prayer that we get to ask because we come to God not on our own merit and not withheld or avoided by God because of our own sin, but welcomed by a loving Father who sent His own Son to take our place and die in the place of sinners, a sinner's death. So that when He was vindicated, you've got to get this. Read verse 10 with me. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Friend, all that was lost in the garden through rebellion was regained for us in another garden through resurrection. Such that when Jesus comes back from the dead, I don't know what other movies you've seen where people come back from the dead, they're always rough, right? Because if if someone comes back from the dead, it's for revenge, vengeance, something, some business is left undone, right? And if someone murders you and you get an option to come back from the dead, you'll probably come back pretty rough too, right? This is how the movie goes because this story fits with what we believe about a broken, sinful, and fallen world. And Jesus, when when he had the opportunity to return with vengeance, to come back out of the grave and confront those who had betrayed him, who had falsely accused him and abandoned him when he needed the most, what did he call them? My brothers, my sisters, and all that was lost in rebellion was restored to us in the resurrection. Friend, you can trust God to lead you and deliver you because Christ was proven true in his testing, and he was delivered from evil to deliver us with him. So that now the ones who bailed out and ran out on him, he welcomes back as brother and sister. He was resurrected to come back and say, not you traitor, but my brother and my sister. Let's pray. God, thank you for the victory of Jesus and the resurrection. Thank you for what you have accomplished for us. Thank you that the impossible happened. Thank you that the eyewitness testimony of what was 
accomplished that day is passed down to us to where we get to celebrate it even now. Thank you, God, that you saw fit not to use Jesus as a, a means to destroy and vanquish us, but as you sent Jesus as a means to destroy and vanquish sin. Now, like this prayer offers, help us to join you in it. Help us to desire deeply to be avoidant and delivered through sin, through trial and temptation. Thank you that you promised to carry us all the way home. Thank you that the promise of Jesus is true, that he will not lose a single one of us. Thank you in this prayer that we're instructed to cry out for deliverance. Like every Sunday we celebrate together as a church, we get to call out for deliverance and know that because of the resurrection, the answer is yes. We are fully and completely delivered. And since Jesus was delivered from the grave, so also will we be. If there's some in this room, maybe that just seems too good to be true. I thank you for bringing them here. I pray even now you would begin to crack open their, uh, crack open their own imagination. They would begin to consider the impossible. That the thing we celebrate and commemorate is exactly that. That you, God, are the God of the impossible. You do what we cannot imagine. You deliver us through things that would overwhelm us. Thank you that the cry of Easter Sunday... This resurrection we celebrate is the cry of victory over death, victory over the impossible. And since you delivered Jesus from the grave, we know you will deliver us from sin, death, hell, and the grave as well. Thank you that you have paid the ultimate price and invited us into your victory. In Jesus' name, amen.